All right, this morning we are going to discuss two things that should never be discussed, religion and politics. The title of the message is The Christian in Politics. And every now and then, the church needs to teach on some of the harder concepts of the Christian life. And this is one of those times. Somebody has to do it, and I drew the short straw. For the most part, here at CBC, we're accustomed to Alex going through a passage and bringing out a fuller, richer meaning, and then drawing an application that we can all choose to take to heart and utilize for a more Christ-like walk. This morning's message is going to be topical, much more pointed, much more directed at a spiritual teaching that some will find more difficult to apply. Not because it's a deeper teaching, but more because of either hardness of heart or hopefully because we elders have failed to teach adequately regarding this most important topic. I'm not sure this subject would even come up at this time except for the current crisis or fabricated crisis, depending on which side of the argument you may find yourself. What we're talking about is authority and exactly what the Christian response should be. Does Scripture address what our response to civil authority should be? Does our response depend on how we view the authority? Does Scripture allow our response to be altered by whether or not we see the authority's decisions as being right or just? And then on top of all of that, with the very hotly debated elections looming in the near horizon, I'm going to talk briefly about the Christian responsibility of voting. We live in very conflicted times with the COVID-19 pandemic, with the liberal and conservative agendas being almost diametrically opposed to one another, and with God himself being forced from nearly every corner of the American culture. We have never lived in a time more wrought with conflict, unease, anger, and fear. And unfortunately, most of the conflict stems from a very basic problem. People have a tendency to forget who's in charge. But fortunately, our main text today clears it all up for us. It's found in Romans 13, 1 through 5. And it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. At this point, let me ask a very basic question. Who's in charge? I, you're right. I believe the answer is obvious. God is. So if I trust God, and if God's in charge, then I must be willing to submit to the authorities over me. Why? Because God is ultimately the authority over any authority of man. But if I lose my trust in God, if I don't look to him for my deliverance, then my temptation is going to be to grab the controls, to steer the ship myself. My temptation will be to fight to have my own way. I firmly believe there isn't an earthly ruler that would do everything the way I do it myself. But if you think about it, 
it certainly makes sense that the most efficient form of government would always be a benevolent dictatorship. One guy is in charge. He makes all the decisions. There's no political conflicts because he's the dictator. But what's really cool is that he's a benevolent dictator. He's gracious. He thinks about the people. He governs, and he tries his best to make right decisions. Let me pick on somebody here this morning. Jeff. Jeff, would you consider yourself a fair man? Yes. Okay, good. Do you think you're just? Very good. Do you feel you have common sense and a desire to do things right? All right. It sounds like you would make a very good benevolent dictator. Do you think you'd make everybody happy in your kingdom with all of your decisions, with everything you, you dealt with? I can tell you already that I'm not happy in your kingdom because somehow you got the job and not me. The fact is that the chances of any of us being totally satisfied with the decisions of any earthly authority are non-existent. But we're counting on the fact that God is the one who's really in charge. And even if Jeff turns out to be a total moron, God wants us to obey our most benevolent King Jeff. Listen to 2 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Did you catch what God said there? God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. We don't have to panic. We don't have to grab the controls. And we definitely don't want to be like the unrighteous because the unrighteous despise authority. If we forget that God's in charge, then we run the risk of being counted with the unrighteous. God puts obedience to earthly authority on the same level as honoring him. In Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, God declares, You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. He literally puts both concepts on the same level playing field. God no more expects you to curse him then he would expect you to curse your leaders. Acts chapter 23 is kind of an interesting one. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest, Ananias, commanded, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So we read, Paul's arrested, he's brought before the Sanhedrin. Paul's first statement is, Hey, I've lived a life with perfectly good conscience, at which point high priest Ananias takes offense and tells somebody to strike him on the mouth. That doesn't sit too well with Paul, and he angrily says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And at that point, someone says, hey, Paul, are you going to revile the high priest, God's high priest? And you can almost sense Paul backing up a step or two as he declares, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest where it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What does that mean in its purest form? 
in our culture today, America 2020. What that means is if you're a Democrat, you don't curse Republican leaders. If you're a Republican, you don't curse Democrat leaders. You don't belittle them on Facebook. You don't make fun of them around the water cooler at work. You don't rejoice when they do stupid stuff. And let's face it, there's a plethora of stupid stuff that deserves to be mocked and ridiculed. Except for that troublesome mandate of God's, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, I'm guessing if you don't trust God, then you can curse them all you want. But if you trust God, you're not going to do that because according to Romans 13, 1 and 2, it says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. I found it really interesting that for the most part, God seems to play by the same rules he asks us to abide by. In the book of of Exodus, we read about the fact that Israel had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. Finally, God sent a man named Moses to go to Pharaoh and declare, let my people go. When Moses appears before Pharaoh for the first time, Pharaoh says in Exodus 5-2, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. And so for the next few weeks, God introduces himself to Pharaoh with one plague after another. Every time a plague was let loose on Egypt, Pharaoh knew who had caused it. And every time Moses came to Pharaoh, he said the same thing over and over again. Let my people go. Why does Moses bother doing this little dance? Why bother to ask Pharaoh to let them go? Why not simply pack up the Israelites and head out of town? I mean, it's not like Pharaoh could have stopped God from rolling over his army on the way out. Well, here's the deal. It seems to me that God was asking Pharaoh's permission for Israel to leave. And it wasn't until Pharaoh gave that permission that Israel left Egypt. It's recorded in Exodus 12, 31 and 32. It says, then he called, he being Pharaoh, then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. God didn't allow Israel to leave their slavery until Pharaoh gave permission. Pharaoh was the authority in Egypt, and God was setting an example that even he allowed himself to be subject to the governing authorities in this case. I believe scripture is very plain about what our response as Christians should be regarding adhering to the mandates of our civil government, as long as they do not violate basic Christian principles. But God teaches about his established authority regarding other facets of our lives too as Christians, specifically the authority of elders within a local body. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. God established his creation with order. He ordered the universe, he ordered government, and he ordered his church for the purpose of bringing glory to himself. The church of Jesus Christ is to function as a body, with Jesus as the head and elders established in every local body. I call your attention to a letter dated August 8, 2020, written to CBC from the elders, which began, The elders desire to inform you of our current response to the governmental imposed restrictions regarding the gathering of God's people during this pandemic. 
Following this introduction, a brief teaching and explanation was given as to why it was imperative for Christians to follow the guidelines established by our governor, a part of which stated, and I quote, the teaching is clear that we should be in compliance with the government in all but the most extreme cases. At this point, the restrictions mandated by the governing authorities are not in violation of scripture. Indeed, these mandates could easily be viewed as violating our rights guaranteed by the Constitution of this country, but our response as Christians, as the Church of Jesus Christ, must concern itself with a scriptural response and not a civil one. The explanation went on to say, again I quote, when churches dismiss the authority of government in areas that do not violate scriptural principles, we find ourselves engaging in a self-righteous civil disobedience that causes non-believers to resent and dismiss Christians. Right now, the guidelines restricting churches also restrict restaurants, movie theaters, museums, gyms, funeral homes, non-essential offices, shopping malls, barbershops, and a lot more. As those restaurants and gym owners view the church's response of civil disobedience, will our refusal to abide by the same restrictions which are causing them financial distress help the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? End quote. The elders' desire was that we all adhere to a scriptural response to what's going on right now, whether we agree with the decisions or not. The reason is twofold. First, it's obvious that God has mandated that we do so. And secondly, the world is going to view our response in a positive or very negative manner, bringing shame upon the gospel of Jesus Christ because we view our constitutional rights as being infringed upon cannot be viewed by God in a positive light. I'll be very honest and candid with you this morning. Personally, I believe that a great deal of this pandemic is fabricated and motivated not only by an overall hatred of the current administration, but a complicit news media and political party that has an agenda that is much different than the America that most of us over 40 years old grew up in. I believe the data is falsified to instill fear, frustration, and anger in as many people as possible with the ultimate purpose of unseating a president that Scripture says God placed in office. Whether you like the man or not, that's what Scripture says. The fact is, however, it doesn't matter what Tom thinks about the current crisis or what the governmental and social response to it might or might not be. What matters is that Tom abides strictly to the scriptural teaching of adherence to authority and that he act in his capacity as an elder of Christ's church to encourage the compliance to these principles by those believers he has been placed in authority over. For the most part, the body here at CBC has responded favorably to the directives set forth, and that does bring joy and not grief to the elders here. But there has been pushback by some who view the restrictions placed by our current governor as interfering with directives of God and certainly the United States Constitution. This has been exacerbated by some well-meaning pastors waging a very public battle with the government over sanctions imposed during this time against Christ Church. I believe they've blown it on their response to the harm of the public image of Jesus and his church. Over the past six months or so, I've had countless conversations with Christians and non-Christians alike regarding their position on the government restrictions imposed during this time. Very few people I've talked to are favorable to what's being done. But then I admittedly am surrounded by conservative-leaning individuals, so my demographics are probably skewed. But the fact is that whether we agree with governmental decisions or not, God still desires that his people, 
to the extent possible, abide by the mandates and thus example to the world the humility that Jesus modeled. It's possible that some have taken a stand and adopted a position that is much more Republican than it is Christian. If you find yourself having rebelled against a scriptural response during this time in our country's history, it may call for repentance. God desires that we make right choices for our own good and to ensure the message of the gospel is not drugged through the dirt. We have a choice, collectively and individually, to be a light or a stumbling block. So with all of that said, we as Americans have... <laughs> train going by. <clears throat> with all of that said, we as Americans have the enviable responsibility to vote for those individuals that make the rules that we as Christians are mandated to follow. Remember what Proverbs 29.2 says? When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. Think about it. We, you and I, ordain these ministers of God with our votes and support. If we support politicians who support ungodly causes, we're responsible. And by our vote and support, we bring either blessings or curses upon ourselves and our society. Considering the season we find ourselves in, I believe the Church of Jesus Christ should be knowledgeable about what Scripture may have to say regarding the Christian's role in choosing our leaders. As Paul told both the church in Rome and the church at Corinth, I do not want you to be ignorant of, and then some particular topic that he's passionate about. And that's my desire this morning. So many times we can come across as ignorant of particular subjects because we fail to seek out real information. Admittedly, when it comes to politics, I have very little desire to study up on the subject, but I have studied up for this message. I'm not going to beat around the bush and speak in innuendos or uncertainties. I will name names and attempt to accurately portray issues and conditions here in America from a biblical worldview. And I do this without apology because I firmly believe that Scripture calls us to do this. Ephesians 5.11 is plain. It tells us, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. We are surrounded by unfruitful deeds of darkness that need to pointedly be subjected to the light of Scripture. When our founding fathers established the framework for our government, I believe they did so with a clear heart and conscience. Our elected officials were ordinary people who served their fellow countrymen for a period of time and then went back to their jobs and their stores or on the farm and left the decisions for our future in the hands of other capable men who would do the same. Politics was not a chosen profession, but rather a call to genuine service. What we have devolved into has become the fodder for every comedian that's writing a punchline. But the problem with political jokes is they get elected. Not only are our representatives the brunt of a lot of jokes, the blatant dishonesty and manipulation of the truth has become legendary. Adlai Stevenson, who won the Democratic Party's nomination for president in 1952 and 1956, may have said it best when he said, I offer my opponents a bargain. If they will stop telling lies about us, I will stop telling the truth about them. The overall lack of individual responsibility of our politicians is absolutely mind-numbing. Do you realize that George Washington is the only president who didn't blame the previous administration for the country's problems? 
The lack of trust that the average man on the street has for our current political climate is probably best summed up by a quote from one of the most tyrannical and ruthless dictators in history, Joseph Stalin. He said, the people who cast the votes decide nothing. The people who count the votes decide everything. And unfortunately, that's just as true today. Woody Allen may have summed up our current dilemma the best when he said, we stand today at a crossroad. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other leads to total extinction. Let us hope we have the wisdom to make the right choice. So is this overwhelmingly negative view of politics and politicians a fair assessment, or is it an alarmist position that is without merit? I don't believe you have to be a politically astute or informed to make an accurate determination of that statement. Politically, things in this country are not only a mess, but are fundamentally divided along party lines from the radical left who are shouting in our streets, death to America, to the radical right who would abdicate returning to the Jim Crow era of our country's history. Most of America would find itself somewhere in the middle of those two extremes, but unmovable in regard to its left or right leaning. In the midst of all of this, it would seem right to ask the question that became popular in the 1990s, what would Jesus do? Is it possible to glean from scripture where Christians should stand in regard to politics and voting, especially in the current political climate of America? Now, right up front, we need to understand that a democratic republic, as we know this country to be, free elections and all of that, were not in existence in biblical times. The Bible does not address specifically the issue of who you should vote for. What it does do is outline specifically some of the qualifications of leadership, some of the characteristics of civil government that fall in line with godly standards, and where we should place our support regarding what is good and what is evil. It is our responsibility to take seriously what is before us and to attempt in every manner possible to do it in accordance with God's will. Let's address the first critical question we face as Christians. Should I even vote? I was speaking with a Christian a few weeks ago who said that he was not going to vote in this upcoming election because neither of the mainstream candidates was in any manner a godly man. I believe his assessment of the candidates is accurate. But I firmly believe his conclusion is fatally flawed. For most of the history of the world, people had to say, had no say in their government. God has blessed us with the ability to decide who our leaders will be. We should approach this right, this right and this responsibility with great care. God calls you to be a good steward with everything that he's given you, which includes the freedoms and responsibilities that accompany them. I'd go so far as to say that failure to participate is a sinful squandering of God's blessing. To not vote is to give the direction of our country over to those who do not share our biblical values, yet do take the time to vote. If we in the Christian community default on our responsibility in the voting booth, then we have left our country to the desires of ungodly and even militant special interests whose agenda is much different than that of God's. Not only must we use the right that God has given us, but we must use it wisely and vote as closely as possible in a godly manner. When you're deciding to vote who to vote for, start with purer motives. Put self-interest aside. Don't vote for a candidate because he's going to give you free stuff. Self-interest is a disastrous way to vote. 
Matthew 6, 21 is a good reminder to us when Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One reason we do this is because we erroneously believe that the role of government is to make us prosperous. That's not why God established government. Our government leaders, according to the Bible, are supposed to concern themselves in very limited areas. And it's important for us to understand this in order to maintain a biblical view during election time. It was God himself who established the institution of government, and it was he who laid out its function. We saw earlier in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, the only mandates that God has given to the government is to protect its people and to administer justice. God establishes authority to protect and preserve the rights of the people. Our founding fathers, who, by the way, had something of a biblical worldview, saw the role of government as ensuring equality. And I believe that is what the conservative elements of our government still adhere to. But don't let the current banter from the streets fool you. The riots, the news coverage, the political din from the liberal side of the aisle is not about equality. The Democrats have revised this ideology and truly believe that government should ensure equity. Equality means that everyone has the same opportunity to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Equity is the idea that I should have whatever you have. The Democratic Party comes across as the big sugar daddy whose job it is to ensure that I have what everybody else has, even though I'm not, not willing to work for it. Let's address another flaw in the conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with the man who said he wasn't going to vote because neither candidate was a godly man. Voting is not analogous to marriage. And understand this. You're not trying to choose the perfect one to spend the rest of your life with. Instead, voting is more akin to public transportation. If there isn't a bus going to the exact address that you want to go to, you don't stay home and pout. You take the bus that's going closest to where you want to get to. Let's face it. In a list of moral and upright men, neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump would make the top million list. But one of these two men is going to be the next president, and one of those two men is aligned with an ideology and a worldview that clearly is much closer to the destination I'd like to see America arrive at. I'm just saying, every Christian should calculate which direction a gun is pointing before pulling the trigger. I don't want to sound at all that character doesn't count. It counts tremendously. The basic character of both men is unacceptable. But let's face it, if the character of both candidates is at question, the next deciding factor should be the policies that they will enact. Long after Trump is no longer in office, his character will hardly even be a talking point among the political pundits. But his judicial appointments and legislative influence will last for decades. Long after Trump is no longer in office, there are other people who will remain in influential positions. Federal judges, for example. They hold lifetime tenures. They are appointed. They are not elected. We do not vote for federal judges. But we do vote for the person who appoints them. Trump has appointed and the Senate has confirmed 197 federal judges as of June 1, 2020, his fourth year in office. This is the second most federal judicial appointments in all presidencies since Jimmy Carter. These judges have been right-leaning constitutionalists who will be called upon to defend freedom, religious liberty, the value of life, and other imperative matters for decades to come. Considering the battle right now for Justice Ginsburg's seat, 
and the fact that Breyer is now the eldest judge on the panel, it's very likely that at least one more vacancy will be filled by the individual elected in November. Here you are with, very, with two very different political parties that stand for diametrically opposed ideas of right and wrong. We need to choose one of them. The only other alternative is to vote for a third-party candidate who would have no hope of winning. If these are my only two options, then voting for a third-party candidate has the clear effect of helping to elect Biden because it's taking my vote away from Trump. Casting your vote for any other candidate simply because you have deemed that these two men seem to lack moral fiber will have no positive impact. It will serve no greater good. It will only serve to further an agenda that is genuinely in opposition to the God we serve. Does character count? Yes, it does. But our children's futures are worth far more than one man's character. Religious liberty is worth far more than one man's character. The millions of lives of the unborn are worth far more than one man's character. Economic advancement, especially for low-income communities, is worth far more than one man's character. So each Christian has to ask themselves if they are willing to sacrifice these valuable opportunities on the altar of one man's character. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. Think about it. We, you and I, ordain these ministers of God with our votes and support. If we support politicians who support ungodly causes or promote immoral behavior, we're responsible. And by our vote and support, we bring either blessing or curses upon ourselves and society. I would never ask someone to vote against their conscience but I would challenge them to reconsider how their conscience is framed. So let me switch gears here for a moment and approach this dilemma from a different angle because the truth is that voting for either candidate may, may seem abhorrent to some people, but voting for an ideology and a worldview that is more in line with scripture is certainly more palatable. We should vote to have our nation aligned as closely to scripture as possible. A simple comparison between the ideology of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party will clearly show a difference that can easily be refuted or supported by Scripture. Remember Isaiah 5.20? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Which party's platform and agenda more closely aligns itself to Scripture in the area of religious freedom? Well, let's look at the facts. Less than one year ago, the Democratic National Committee unanimously passed a resolution criticizing America's first freedom, religious liberty, claiming it is used to justify public policy that has threatened the civil rights and liberties of many Americans, including but not limited to the LGBT community, women, and ethnic religious, non-religious minorities. Unfortunately, the very same Democratic National Committee resolution enthusiastically embraces the religiously unaffiliated as emblematic of the party's values and, I quote, the largest religious group within the Democratic Party. Religiously unaffiliated. If given their way, very soon Christians will be prosecuted for hate speech for preaching against anything negative regarding homosexuality, marriage limited to a man and a woman, and other scriptural mandates that are rapidly being eroded in our country today. The First Amendment was written to protect the right to believe and live accordingly, even when your views are unpopular. 
President Thomas Jefferson and the founders knew that if government was allowed to invade the space between a man and his God or force him to violate his own conscience, there would be no limit to government oppression. Thus, they placed religious liberty first in the Bill of Rights. Without it, every other freedom we hold dear would fall. In May of last year, the Equality Act passed the Democratic-led House and failed to even make it, make it to the floor of the Republican-led Senate. What the media does not cover is that the centerpiece of Biden's 7,000-word plan is the passage of the Equality Act. Hey, everybody's for equality, right? The problem is that the act specifically addresses sexual orientation and gender identity as being granted special legal status with the power to override religious convictions. It labels religious conviction as discrimination and grants the power to sue in court. Joe Biden's plan to promote equality at the expense of religious freedom has quietly slid under the radar. In Biden's plan, students would be guaranteed access to bathrooms and locked rooms of their choosing. Conversion therapy becomes a punishable offense. Government forms would be required to have not only male and female boxes to check, but would require a third option for non-binary individuals. The result of this legislation is so pervasive to every aspect of our religious freedoms. Women's sports would be dominated by men on hormones. Biden's plan would hold the Obama administration's definition of discrimination as anything that openly espoused traditional marriage or insisted their person actually is his or her biological sex. How does that fit in with your theology or your right to religious freedom? We're not talking here about minor inconveniences. We're talking about some of the foundational teachings of Scripture and the very basis of our Constitution. The government's major responsibility, according to Scripture, is to protect its citizens, and yet the Democratic Party's agenda would amend the concept of qualified immunity for police officers. Qualified immunity has long been a way to protect police from unnecessary lawsuits and to give them the freedom to police without fear of unnecessary retribution. This would immediately make it easier for courts to find police officers personally liable for their actions, even when a reasonable effort on their part is demonstrated. All this does is make it nearly impossible to recruit young men and women to protect us in the law enforcement profession. Further hindering the role of government to protect its citizens, the Democratic platform would specifically ban no-knock search warrants for all federal drug cases and would require local and state law enforcement agencies to prohibit their use to qualify for some federal funding. As a police officer for 34 years, I can tell you that would be devastating to the safety of police officers and further hamper their efforts to effectively protect our citizens. Now, I could go on and on because the differences are almost innumerable. But for the sake of time, we'll look at just one more distinct difference between the Democratic and Republican platform issues. And if this were the only difference between the two parties, it should be enough to realize that there is an anti-biblical agenda in store for America if the Democrat candidate wins the presidential election. And that issue is abortion. Under the guise of women's rights, the Democratic Party is in favor of late-term abortions right up to the moment of birth. This goes not only for the presidential nominee, but for our state legislators and governor as well. Every one of them should be held accountable in this area. God is the creator of life, and all human life is made in his image. So all human life has inherent worth. 
God prohibited the murder of human beings and required capital punishment for those who do in Genesis 9-6. Interesting concept, though. Think about it. God is for capital punishment and against murder. How can that be? Well, the difference between killing and murder lays in two words, innocent blood. Beginning in Deuteronomy and over 20 times throughout Scripture, God condemns the shedding of innocent blood. Someone who kills another human being and is on death row has been found guilty of murder. Scripture allows the government to punish that person by death. But a baby is never guilty. And if we believe that life begins at conception, which Scripture holds to be true, then abortion is murder because no one could be more innocent than a baby. What all this really comes down to is whose agenda, which party's platform, is more in line with a biblical worldview. The answer is obvious. So the question for the Christian really is, do I hold the tenets of Scripture as a conviction, or are they just a good idea that really shouldn't come with me into the voting booth? One thing I do know is that I'm really ready for this election to be over. Wednesday, November 4th can't come soon enough. When we all wake up that morning and the election is finally over, I know exactly what November 4th will bring. Another day of God's perfect sovereignty. He will still be in charge. His throne will still be occupied. He will still manage the affairs of the world. Never before has his providence depended on a king, a president, or a ruler.